Good morning, everyone. So, we've been discussing the uh, truth about the descent of the Tattva of the Godhead, and uh, reading from Bhagavad Gita, chapter 4, where, where for the first time in the Gita, Krishna mentions bhakti and bhakta, devotion and the devotee. And um, naturally that has to come up when he begins to speak about himself, as he does here, and to reveal himself to Arjuna in terms of his divinity. Arjuna is friends with Krishna, but Krishna happens to be God. So, for the sake of teaching, then... He has to get Arjuna's attention and um, convince him of his extraordinary status. Otherwise, you could take a friend's advice or, or leave it. Um, so he begins to speak about himself here in the way we'll find him speaking about himself later in the middle, middle six chapters of the Gita where the theology fully comes out, where Bhagwan, who is the object of devotion for the bhakta, has to, um, has, uh, has to be uh, discussed. So if we're going to talk about devotion, we have to talk about Bhagwan. In Gyan, the yoga, path of, uh, the, the path of knowledge, then the object is Brahman. In yoga, the object is Paramatma. In bhakti, the object is Bhagwan. Brahman means existence and Paramatma connotes uh, cognizance, knowing and Bhagwan, bliss. And these are these kind of elements, if you will, Sat, Chit, Ananda, Sat, existence, Chit, knowing, Ananda, bliss. They're distributed throughout these different phases or manifestations of the divinity, Brahman, Paramatman, Bhagwan. But uh, in the Bhagwan, the scale is tipped towards ecstasy. In Brahman, towards existence. And in Paramatma, towards knowing. Paramatma means the manifestation of God within the heart, who's all-knowing, directing the wanderings of the living beings and so forth, sanctioning their their desires, making that, that their fulfillment possible, and, and so on. Existence, we are likened to, the, to Brahman, because we are consciousness. We exist. We don't, we're not here today and gone tomorrow. We're enduring. As uh, we've, we've said before, if something, something can exist, but may not be cognizant of its existence, but if something exists, and is to be cognizant of its existence, or if something is cognizant, something can exist but need not be cognizant of it. Like matter exists, but it's not aware that it exists. But if something is cognizant, it has to exist. You can have existence without cognizance, but you can't have cognizance without existence. 
Now, you could have a cognitive existence that wasn't blissful. But if, if you were to be blissful, then you have to exist, and you have to be cognizant also. So Bhagavan feature of the God, it represents the full face of existence, knowing, and bliss. And Brahman represents knowing and existence, some bliss, and Brahman represents existence and little knowing and living less bliss, something like that. And, and so the different paths, different yogas, for attaining these different objectives, sometimes it's been described like like a train at a distance, a train looks like a at a distance it, 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 it it's a sound in a distance. And someone said, a train is coming. That's the train. They've identified the whistle with the train. Someone waits a little longer and they see the light on the end of the front of the train. So the train is a light. It's a whistle and a light. Someone waits a little longer and the train pulls up and it's quite a bit more than a whistle and light. And there's a whole life inside the train and you get on it and go. And, and so Brahman, Paramatma and Bhagwan, something like this. And when we look comparatively at these goals, these objectives, these ideals, then the paths that correspond with them will be more or less comprehensive in terms of forging a union with that feature of the Absolute. So you can forge a union with Brahman, but it's not going to be a, a union with, of, of such intimacy because that aspect of divinity doesn't afford intimacy. And similarly with Paramatma. Now, they can forge a union with Paramatma through yoga, but um, it'll be a particular type of union. And you can forge a union with Bhagwan and uh, through Bhakti and... That'll be a particular type of of union. So, as Krishna is explaining the history of the yoga that he's teaching Arjuna to get his attention, as we spoke yesterday, and and say this isn't a new thing. It's not a fly by night, you know, thing. This has been around for a long time, and so forth. Then he then he has spoken about the method by which it it it's brought to the world. This succession of teachers and student, teacher, student, uh, parampara, one after another. It keeps being renewed. If by the influence of time it gets obscured, again, new investment is made in that um, by, by the Godhead and the powerful representation comes in the world in the form of a powerful saint representing the lineage, resurrecting it, and so forth. And as we said yesterday, we may question how such a spiritual thing can be overcome by, by material influence, but time is the hand of God, so he's behind the whole thing. And it all the purpose is to bring out new light, to shed new light, and so forth. Sometimes you look at a thing, get then you step back, and then go forward again and see more, and so forth. So it's God playing, playing hide-and-seek with us. I'm here, now I'm over here. And so, you said you were over there. I went all the way over there. Now you say you're over here. So, as bhakti develops, then we just go over there, we don't question. Okay, now you're over there. Such is your nature, you're playful and so forth. So, this way Krishna has been explaining how this descent comes, and he, and he is 
obviously the the Purnavatar, so or Avatari, and he's descended, and um, he's bringing this out to Arjuna. That Arjuna will uh, pay attention, and so a slight um, turn here in the course of the discussion towards this, this, this theology, and then naturally, then as he begins to speak about the Godhead and the descent of the Godhead to the world, and how yoga comes from up to down. In other words, how knowing about God is possible if God wants us to know. Otherwise, it's not possible. Just like with regard to the senses, the eyes see if the mind minds the eyes. That's why we go go on a trip and we, we see things, and other people didn't see them. They were there, and they may have come in front of their eyes, but their mind wasn't connected to their eyes when they saw that, when the eyes looked at that. You understand? So, so in the same way, that if, if we are to actually become aware of God, then if God minds us, so to speak, if he wants to make himself known and, and, and uh, make us aware of it, then, then it's possible. And yoga is the means by which he, he extends himself and makes himself available in to different to different extents with different types of yoga and so forth. Now he's talking to Arjuna, and Arjuna is his devotee, so his whole book is has got to be about bhakti because here you have the equation: you have Bhagwan and the Purnavatar, Krishna himself, and and the bhakta, the devotee. So the, the, what's the Gita about? It has to be about bhakti. Because <laughs> These are the two things you have. You have the, if you have the, if you have Bhagwan and you have the devotee, you have to have devotion. That has to be the main subject. So while there are other topics talked about, as I said, they talked about for the purpose of indirectly shining light on the efficacy of bhakti, its power and um, its potential and its reach into transcendence, at the capacity, the extent to which it affords us the opportunity to have a uh, union with with truth to meet with the truth to to uh, to to yoga with to to have you know, have have union with with reality so he's this what's happening here in this the chapter he's just, he's kind of paving the way for him to talk about himself because while he's again he's talking about the antiquity of the teaching and creating faith in arjun it's also creating some doubt and some confusion in Arjuna. What is the doubt? Because the doubt will come in the next verse, verse after the one we're going to discuss today. But uh, to jump ahead a second, the doubt is what? Wait a minute, you know, you're sitting here on the chariot and you said that you spoke this to the Son of God at the dawn of creation. How is that possible? And you look just like my friend, like a human. Humans don't talk to, don't teach gods and even if they did, they wouldn't remember it because they don't remember their last lives. And so what's what's going on here? So in this way, by speaking the way he is, Krishna is creating, trying to awaken some faith in yoga and at the same time it, uh, bring Arjuna into some new, new territory, the divinity of himself. He created the system. He brings this yoga to the world. This is how he does it. Through this system of parampara, and, and and then and so today, and so 
he's saying some pretty big thing. He's basically saying indirectly here, and Arjuna will question him about it directly, more or less just saying that you're God. And uh, that this, these teachings originate, originate in you. And, um, and so this is dawning on Arjuna for a moment. And so this is, this is extraordinary. He's thinking, well, why are you telling it to me? Who am I? If this is true, what you're saying, I have some doubts about it. But, but if it's true, like you talk to the sun god, you, know, you talk to Manu, you give it to these great kings and rishis and so forth, and just little old me here, uh, you know, now you're telling it to me? Well, I'm not sure about that. Why would you be telling it to me? Who am I in comparison to, to them? So he's talked about something about the stature of the people who, who receive this. But he's also, Krishna, alluded to the qualification of Arjun for hearing it. In the verse we ended with yesterday, he, said, he addressed Arjun by the name Parantapa. He said, Evam parampara praptam imam raja shayobidu sakalena hamahata yoganashta parantapa. Parantapa means like who's capable of subduing his, his, uh, his enemies. And the enemies, in a sense, uh, in this world are our thoughts and our the, the, uh, distract, distracted mind and our, the force of our senses that pull us into the world and cause attachments and so forth. So he's referring to the, to the fact that Arjun has shown in the past some uh, capacity to restrain himself in extreme circumstances. When um, Arjun was in exile, there was an occasion where the Heavenly Urvasi, this is described in Mahabharata, which is the greater text that the Bhagavad Gita is one, one section of. Urvasi, the heavenly goddess, appeared and tried to distract him and so forth. And he showed great restraint at that time, at a time when uh, most would, men would melt. What to speak of in front of a beautiful earthly woman, here was a goddess from, from the heavens. And... Uh, uh, I don't recall the whole instance, but this is what, what Krishna is referring to. And Arjuna showed great restraint. So the implication here is that while Krishna is speaking about the parampara and the succession of teachers who hand this knowledge down, he's also talking about the qualification of those who are students and therefore an appropriate recipients of this knowledge. You know, it's a common thing to wonder who's a qualified guru. And, uh, you know, you have to look around, but it's not that easy to find a qualified disciple either, qualified students. So the qualifications of each should be brought out. And the more we imbibe and cultivate and develop the, the qualification of a student, the more readily we'll be able to recognize the teacher when he or she appears. So there's some correspondence. And without student, there's no teacher. Without teacher, student, they, they go together. So the real secret then, if you, in a sense, of finding a guru is, that, is to qualify ourselves to some extent so that, the, so that that vision will be... So and there's no shortage on the part of the Godhead to reveal himself, and he does so through this system, as is mentioned. But for, uh, for us to recognize it, 
that'll that'll require some qualification on our part. And so this is kind of a classic qualification that's mentioned here by use of the name Parantapa in referring to Arjun. Students should be a little little um, peaceful and um, controlled and you know, I don't know, does anybody teach high school? You teach school, uh, some little brain. You know, kids can be pretty wild in high school these days or in a grammar school too, shooting the place up and, you know, <laughs> in extremes and so forth. So, you know, some are more qualified to learn than others. There's, so, some restraint. Uh, Narada uh, is, is, the great Narada Muni is, uh, discussed with regard to his qualifications for learning in the Bhagavad. He was a young boy and uh, living with his mother, which in this instance implies that he didn't know who his father was and his his mother didn't either, so it wasn't like the greatest birth in a, in a sense, an accident, so to speak, uh, um, which he, but, but he was a very gentle boy and during the rainy season, the four months of the rainy season, some great saints were devotees. They um, took their residence up in his house. The mother provided residence for them. During the rainy season, the sadhus, they don't move as much in India because it's torrential and monsoons and so forth. They would sit and they would eat less because they weren't moving as much. They were fasting and different vows they would take and so on. And they would always discuss the Bhagavad and Krishna Leela. And, so, and the boy was there. And he was just, you know, like, you know, at a certain age, boys can be really nice. Your son can be really nice. You know, he's ready to do whatever and just learn, just be like dad and mom. And it's like, you know, this guy's great, you know. <laughs> Things changed. But, uh, so those are the kind of qualifications, in other words. And Nard was like that. He was just a young boy. So he, had, he was just at the right age and he, had, he showed all the good qualifications of these Bhakti Vedantas. They sadhus, they they gave him great mercy. They they just just seeing that even in a, in a boy, who you know might otherwise grow up to be rebellious in so many ways and uncontrolled and so forth, they are attracted to those qualities. So you can think of a young boy or a young girl, for that matter, at a certain age, they're just really nice. You know, they want to do whatever they're told. You know, it's not all of them, but a lot of them. And um, so those are the kind of qualities that, <laughs> that are. That will uh, are conducive to hearing and uh, and and to learning. You know that uh, kind of an ongoing teachable moment. And they say you have to find a teachable moment to to in, in invest the teaching in, in, in someone. Otherwise, it will fall on deaf ears. So that's kind of a good uh, model for saying. This Nara was like that, and they blessed him, and they in the remnants of their food he would take and so forth. And he. So he imbibed something from them, such that, as the story goes in Bhagavad, it so happened that they left when the monsoons passed, and then um, his mother was bitten by a cobra and died. He was just a young boy. And so um, he so much absorbed the essence of what these sadhus were about and how they were living their life that he thought about it. What am I to do now? I'm a young man, young boy, my mother's died and she's been taking care of me. And so he lit the whole house on fire as a funeral pyre. He didn't just take his mother and, you know, have a funeral. He just lit the whole house on fire and, and walked. 
and he became like those sadhus who, whom he had associated with and so on. And then he eventually became the great Narada who wrote Narada Bhakti Sutras and, and Narada Pancharatra and appears in Bhagavatam in so many places and so on. So it's a long story, nice story. Bhagavatam speaks of his previous life too, how he got that life and how from that life he perfected himself and so on. So he's a nice example of a sadhana siddha who becomes perfect by, by spiritual um, practice through good association. So practice and, um, and the proper disposition of a disciple is important. So Krishna is inducing, introducing both sides of the equation here. The descent of divinity, in the first way he's talking about it, through this parampara, which means his kripa shakti, the guru comes, is a manifestation of his compassion uh, for the living entities, shares the teaching and so forth, and with certain people, looking for a good uh, you know, student to, to tell the secrets to. So he indicates to an extent here with the word parantapa that uh, there are some some things that we can do that will attract that kind of sympathy. Someone will think, I've got some knowledge to offer. I've got to find a place where it's going to, you know, a sponge where it's going to be taken up and taken advantage of. And Sadhu naturally is going to spend his or her time like that. You know, say, hi, how you doing? Nice to see you, you know. Or he say, "Come on in and let's talk about it. you know you know somebody's ready to absorb more so so parantapa, and now he goes on further here, and this is uh, important um, as he's setting up the setting the stage for talking about his own descent as a, as an avatar first he's talking about the parampara, the system through which the knowledge that he personifies comes to the world and how he himself comes to the world. The two aren't entirely different because, as we said, the manifestation of Krishna that um, appears as Guru Tattva is, practically speaking, more important to us than, than Krishna because it's, Krishna is kind of coming in a customized way, you know, just to suit us and deal with us personally and so forth. But nonetheless, he does come through the Guru Parampara and he does come himself. So he's setting the stage for talking about that his own uh, appearance in, in his own divinity here. And again, if he's talking about his own divinity, bhakti has to come up. So he says here, So again, Arjuna's wondering, what's my, if this is true what you're saying, what's my qualification for hearing this? It seems almost unbelievable you say you did all this and now you're going to tell it to me. Why are you out talking to some other big guy important rishi or some other god or something why me I'm just your your friend and and so forth so he's saying because you are i've seen you are, have some control of yourself you're a sober person you're not simply distracted by the world in every respect running here and there and everywhere trying to gratify your senses you're a sensible person uh, sober and uh, civilized tame kind of a tame animal, so I can get a little close to, to you. Our sensual you know, predilection drive is like our, the drive towards animality. As much as we can control that, regulate that, the more we move towards our humanity and ultimately qualify ourselves for, for divinity and uh, moving in that direction. 
So here he comes with something further, he says. He says, Sahayevayam maya tedya yoga prokta parantapaso. He more or less is saying, so you may be wondering why I'm telling this to you, right? Is this credible? Am I just making this up? Why? No, there's a reason, Parantapa, that I'm speaking this to you. You've shown qualities of self-control and so forth, but beyond that, he says, He says, this is a great secret. It is Rahasya Uttamam. Now, when he says Rahasya Uttamam, there are different kinds of secrets, Right? But he says here, this is the Uttama Rahasyam. Rahasyam means secret. This is the supreme secret. So we get indication here that, that all this yoga he's talking about really comes to bhakti. This is where it's coming out. He uses the word bhakta. Bhaktosime sakha jeti. Bhakta means, Arjun, you're my, you're my devotee. And sakha, you're my friend. And then because of this, I can tell you the supreme Secret. It means it's not that I can just tell this to everybody. They won't believe me when I say it. There are different kinds of secrets, as I said, even spiritually speaking. So here's a secret. Common knowledge is that by acquiring things, we'll become happier. The secret knowledge is by giving up things, we'll become more full and happy. That's kind of like, what? It's backwards from material life, right? By giving up things, I become more fulfilled. How, how does, what kind of mathematics is that? What kind of, where did you get your, you know, degree in, you, know, you missed a skip, arithmetic to me. By acquiring, we grow. Though the secret teaching is, by giving up, you grow. And it's not logical, but it's our experience. If we give up, we let go, and we give, we do grow. We can't show that to anyone. Look, see how big I am. In fact, you may be living with less. But, but if people get to know you, they'll see you're more full. So this is mysterious. This is one of the ways in which we can say that life doesn't move logically, really, in a progressive sense. Because to grow and become more full, we have to give. We have to give up. We have to let go. And it looks like it's just the opposite. And um, that's the material perspective, and that's how what math would tell us, and so forth. So there's another language here that uh, is to, to be learned. Math is, as I've said before, a controlling language, a language for controlling. But uh, we don't want to control, we want to participate and be part of what's actually going. We're not the controller, but that's the whole problem. We're trying to control it, so to let go of that. So these texts try to talk about this. We'll speak more in poetry and uh, through art and music, which are more participatory languages. There's subjective languages. There's better scope for understanding the subjective reality rather than to try to reduce the subjective reality to the objective, make everything object matter, we would go more in the other direction, make everything subject. All consciousness, consciousness is all in the background. We're moving in the other side. So that's one secret. 
But that's not the rahasyam uttamam. That's just a basic spiritual secret. So, if, let's give another example. If you say, look, all these material manifestations are creating difference. There's your mind and there's my mind. You have your likes, I have my likes. So there's some difference. Sometimes we agree on some things and there's some, some union, some oneness. But largely, material life is full of differences. We sense that reality is about some unity, but it always escapes us because of these differences that we have, born in the mind and so forth. So some secret knowledge would be to say, these differences are illusory. They're just born in your mind. And that you, there's something underlying all this where you can find unity. And that's Brahman, the consciousness, and we're of that nature. And so you can go beneath the, the cover, so to speak, and, uh, and, and find this uh, underground, the, the unity. You're trying to find the unity above ground, and uh, they're, they're, that's where all the, the differences is, based on the, identifying with the material manifestation. So the secret knowledge is unity lies underneath this uh, material phenomenon, and we're of that nature, and so forth. And so that's different knowledge. That's, that's secret knowledge. But then if you say, hmm, now, inside of that unity, there is variety, and there are forms, names. We start talking about Leela, and he said, wait, wait a minute, you just said all these forms, and they're getting in the way, and there's difference. Now you're talking about forms again? This is more secret knowledge. In other words, really it's not that much of a secret to explain the antithesis of material life. It's easy to go, it's easy to go from one end to the other. The names and forms are looking like they're creating facility for enjoyment, so, but they're actually they're getting in the way of the unity. And so we do away with them, we go to Brahman, all becomes one. It's not a big leap to understand that. But then if I start talking about, now there are names and forms within consciousness that develop and all that, then it starts to become, the head starts spinning a little bit. It's a, what, what is he saying now? So this is even more secret knowledge. This is the knowledge of bhakti. Like if I say to you, for example, look, be objective, okay? Detach. Look at the thing objectively. Then you'll see where it, what it really is. Okay, and that's noble and that's high to be detached, right? See it for what it is and um, not be bought and paid for by anybody. If the politician is bought and paid for by a corporation, his position is compromised, right? So to be objective, to be detached. So you can go with that. So, yeah, so spirituality must go in that direction. And then we start talking about being attached to Krishna. And some people are attached to Ram. More, others are more attached to Krishna. Another to Vishnu, Narayan. And all of a sudden these biases and prejudices are again coming up. And it looks just like material life. But it's very different at the same time. And so this is, this is more, comp, more secret kind of knowledge. How there can be... It's one thing to say that material bias and prejudice and attachment is a problem and you can get that. And now we're going to talk about spiritual attachment and bias and how, it's, how it doesn't get in the way of harmony. And there's, there are different forms and names, but they don't compromise. 
So this is more secret knowledge. That's the idea. So knowledge of Brahman is secret, but knowledge of Paramatma is more secret that that existence is based on a being. And then to say that the being has, has uh, life and what to speak of romantic life and, and that the controller of everything becomes controlled by bhakti, by love, and doesn't look like a controller, looks just like the chauffeur of Arjuna and so forth on the chariot. This is the kind of, this is rahasya uttam. This term is used, rahasya, in Bhagavat, other places, also throughout um, the texts, it's in reference to bhakti and to, to Krishna bhakti in particular. So he says, this is a, this is a very special kind of uh, secret. It's not for everyone. You're right about that, but it's right for you because you're my devotee. Now, when he says you're my devotee, it means you have bhakti. You have some bhakti. And he, he speaks about the particular kind of bhakti that Arjuna has. He says, bhaktosi me sakha. Sakha means friend. So you love me as a friend. Because you have this kind of affinity for me, therefore, I give this knowledge to you. So now what we're hearing is, we hear that the Godhead descends, right? In different ways into the world. And we said of his own volition, if he wants us to know about him, then we will know. If the mind minds the eye, the eye can see the object that it's focused on. Otherwise not. So if God minds us, so to speak, and wants us to know about him, then we can see him, then we can know him. It's on his terms. But then again, what are his terms? So he's saying there is something on this side. There's another way to look at it. That we're looking at like he's free and independent. He reveals himself if he wants to. But now he's speaking from the other side. He says, actually, I'm attracted by devotion. That means the devotion is causeless. That means that this bhakti is not within the realm of karma. It has nothing to do with that. Otherwise, how can it control Krishna? Krishna has no cause. He's not caused to do anything. He's free and independent, swarat. So this bhakti that seems to cause him to do things must also be free and independent. It's his own shakti. And as it this comes through Guru Parampara, this bhakti, through this chain, this channel, this bhakti can come to us. And as it comes in our heart, then Bhagavan will appear there. He will be attracted to that. So it's this, it's this, it's this, what it is is this, is Bhagavan wants to experience himself. So he invests his bhakti in the heart of his devotee. And from that vantage point, then the devotee experiences him and he experiences himself in relation to the devotee. Sugar is sweet but it can't taste itself. Krishna is sweet. He's Rasaraj. But he manifests as Radha to taste himself. And Radha is kind of the fountainhead of all devotion, the pinnacle of devotion. She's like the, the, the channel that brings the drop that we are in connection with the ocean that is of rasa, of ecstasy, that is, that is Krishna. She's the example of the highest devotion and um, the ideal of devotion and the um, 
personify the means itself uh, in, in that way. Uh, deity, I should say, and an ideal of devotion at the same time. So Krishna is saying that there's something that makes me come to the world, there's something that causes the avatar that's not, um, that's, that it's kind of a causeless cause or something like that. It's not a, he, he, he's independent, but he's controlled by bhakti. So what must be the nature of bhakti? That means bhakti has to be otherworldly. That means it can't come from you. It has to descend into you. That's an interesting point. Actual bhakti descends into us. We have some capacity to take to bhakti, some potential to embrace bhakti, to express ourselves in relation to bhakti and to be a devotee. But this bhakti, that is love of Krishna, by which Krishna is controlled, conquered, that turns Brahman into Krishna, so to speak. This comes to Guru Parampara. This is the channel. Sudashatva visheshatma prema suryam susamibhag. As this starts to come. Shreya kairava chandrikavatara. Coming from that side. Then it comes in us. And then we draw him. Then that we draw him down. So bhakti comes first. It enters into the heart, and 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 then that heart uh, brings him. He says later he'll say, "Paritranaya sadhanam vinashaya traduskritam dharma samstapanartaya sambhavami jugay He says, "I come to the world to do away with the miscreants and the misbehavior and so forth, and shed light on that for what it is, and and to give some protection and nourishment." to my devotees. The first is like a secondary thing. It's a byproduct of that. Ignorance is destroyed as a byproduct of bhakti. There's two sides to the equation of our liberation, removing the negative influence of karma and becoming situated in love of God. That's the second part. One is positive, the latter, and the other is a negative removal. So, the the, the, the the giving of the love of God and the nourishment of the devotees, it means this also, that in this world, which is, has no beginning, as we said, right? Again and again it's coming in cycles for since time without beginning, like the breathing of Vishnu and his, 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 his waking and his, his sleeping, the world is coming and going, the world is coming and going, and all these souls are coming and going and coming out and finding a place according to their karma and going back in, and then there's intervention. The Guru Parampara is the divine intervention into the karmic kind of complex by which we can get out, distributing bhakti through this. The touch of that gives us the power to, to come out of the web, and the entanglement of karma. It can eradicate all karma, even karma that hasn't come to bear its fruit yet. It's waiting to arrest us for the crimes that we've committed, so to speak. You've been tried... And, you know, you're already in prison, and there's a whole list of other crimes <laughs> that you've committed that the trial hasn't even, you know, started yet, and, and, and you're going to be guilty, <laughs> for sure. And so, like, this, you know, you're going to go from confinement to solitary confinement to, you know, who knows where, before you see the light of day again. And bhakti comes and, 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 and destroys all this. The guy's already in jail, and, he's, and he likes me, so... <laughs> You know, and I'm the supreme judge, so let's, you know, I think we can deal with some of this other stuff. Let's just close those cases. They won't even, you know, come to 
come, come, into, the, come into the courtroom and let's look at parole here. Is there any possibility of parole? So when we take shelter of the agent, the guru, we get parole. We're kind of out of the jail. We're on parole. We have some free movement, you know, freedom to move, and, and we're moving according to bhakti within certain parameters set up by by the guide. In this way, the karmas being is karmic repercussions are being mitigated. This is the system. So bhakti comes. So in this world, this is going on, and there are always sadhakas in this world. There are always people in this world, souls that are in the, involving in this process. It's hard to put your head around, but just like there's an adi karma, so some time without a beginning, this bhakti is also in the world through Guru Prabhupada and through the avatar, the descent of the Godhead. And and it's it's reaching a certain point in the lives of certain devotees. And when it reaches a certain point, it causes Krishna to descend. And that this descent means externally as the avatar or in the heart. It's happening to me. So Krishna is, is moving according to this bhakti. Bhakti comes, then Krishna follows. So he's saying to Arjuna, You're, you've got the, you know, the half of the equation here. That's what's, what's uh, the driving force. My movement is not under the influence of karma. I may enter the, I may enter the prison, but I've got the keys. I may look like anybody else here, uh, but, uh, but I've got the keys to get out. And stick with me, you know, and, and I'll unlock the doors here. And I'm choosing you. Why am I, you know, I'm unlocking your cell. And you're thinking, why my cell? Why aren't you unlocking his cell? He came in here before me. And, uh, and he's a good person in so many respects. And maybe he should get out and, and Arjuna said, that doesn't matter. Whatever his, qual- whatever his qualifications may be, that's all relative. Your qualifications is, you like me. You have some attraction for me. And I'm, this is the law of love. I'm, so I'm attracted to you. You have, some, you have some devotion for me. So therefore, I'm unlocking your door. And you can come out. And it's almost like, believe it or not, we're going to walk out of here just like that? And so many other are going to be you know, in jail? And so what's happening then... Then the devotee has got some compassion. He thinks, "What about all those other doors? You know, I've just, I've just been blessed. I've been so fortunate. Can't we?" And this is how then the devotee becomes part of the parampara, and, and he has the compassion for others who don't yet have devotion. And he or she then, out of that compassion, that caring, just like those bhaktivedantas, they stayed at the house of Nard, his mother's house, and they just had showed compassion for him. And so. And, and he was like a sponge, so he, he, he soaked it up. And then when his mother died, what did he, you see? He understood something. So as I said before, what you know will be understood by what you do. He could have sat there and learned all this stuff from them. And then when his mother passed away, he just shown that he didn't really understand very much by just weeping about it and mourning and you know, going to trying to find another material situation or thinking, well, I've inherited the house. I got the house to myself anyway, you know. So I know I'll try to make it here. You know, he just burned the whole house down. That was the funeral pyre. In other words, he threw everything material in there. And this is the nature of the world. I've learned it. So what we know will be determined really by how we how we act. What we've learned about bhakti will be determined by how much we we give, how much we participate, and and 
and so this is how the whole thing works. It's very interesting. So Krishna's um, picking up a sadhaka at a certain point, coming in a prominent way for that sadhaka. I'm talking about in a, in a more broad sense, the appearance of God in the world, in the life of someone, in the heart of someone, for a particular reason, because the bhakti is reaching a certain point. He's attracted. Krishna's under that influence. He doesn't go out of that influence. Therefore, there have to be devotees in the world for him to come to the world. And they have to be at a certain level of devotion, bhakti proper, to uh, attract him. So Arjuna is such, such a devotee. So you become attracted to Krishna. You think, well, what did I do? What are my qualifications? I didn't, I'm not very maybe intelligent, learned. I may not be very pure, but I like Krishna. So this is a big thing. To get that is is, is a sign of good, uh, really good, uh, good luck, good fortune. So in this way, Krishna is explaining his descent, is independent, but not caused by anything of this world. There's nothing you can do by piety or fasting or yogic exercise or mental power. There's no, there's no power from this side that can attract Krishna. So therefore we have to understand that force that does attract Krishna must be coming from somewhere else. So bhakti itself must be transcendental. That's why he said in the beginning of this chapter, it's avyayam. This yoga I'm teaching about you is avyayam. Avyayam means imperishable. It means the path is the goal. So we're not doing bhakti to get knowledge so that we can stop serving. We're doing serve. We're putting, making an investment in the bank of service so that we can invest more in the bank, invest more. Eventually you live on the dividends. You just keep giving and the dividends of knowing and ecstasy come to carry your life. You just keep investing, keep investing in the bank of service. This is the idea. So the bhakti has stages. There's bhakti in practice, bhakti in ecstasy, bhakti in love. Sadhana bhakti, bhav bhakti, prem bhakti. It's all bhakti. So bhakti begets bhakti. In Golok, in the Leela, they're all moving under the influence of bhakti. And we, to the extent that we're participating in all these affairs, we're moving under the influence of bhakti in practice or in ecstasy and in perfection, uh, as I say, in, in prem. So our means is synonymous with the ends. So therefore, it's imperishable. In, in, in other words, let's say, let's look at Gyanmarg, for example, or Karma Marg. Karma Marg, Nishkam Karma. In Karma Marg, you do work in Karma Yoga without attachment to the results. What would the result be? And why? Because you have some liking for the work, but you give up being motivated by the carrot so to speak, of the work, the fruit. And so you do the work more wholesomely and so forth, but you, the result is that you lose interest in the work. You, you leave it behind. Then what happens? You come to knowledge. Some ingress of wisdom comes into you and you can sit and, and, and meditate. And so there's a cultivation now of this knowledge. What happens in Gyanmarg? Ma, no, you come to sattva, and sattva is, is, uh, begets knowledge and happiness, and then the knowledge is given up. That's Gyanmark. The knowledge is given up. 
Now in Bhakti Marg, the Bhakti you see is, is never given up. So these paths, the paths are not imperishable in that they are utilized first to a, to a certain point and then they're retired. So we can understand that those paths are coming from this side. They're employing something from this side to go to that side. From the lower side to go to the upper side. They'll only be so useful. They'll only bring us so much in touch with Bhagavan. And for that matter, according to the Gita and Bhagavad, if there's a touch of bhakti in those, they'll be fruitful in the fullest sense. Otherwise not. And then we have bhakti. See the difference in the bhakti? That's why it's the full face of yoga. Because it's imperishable, so it comes from that side. It controls Krishna. So it can't be coming from... Krishna's not going to be controlled by meditation or yoga. Some way that you can, you know, adjust your body or your mind, or you know, you can develop great mental powers, or huge intellectual powers, or huge physical powers. Right? It can be very strong and so forth. What is that? You know, this what's that to Krishna, to God? I mean, this is it's all coming from this side. But he, there's a power that he's under, so to speak, and it's his own. It's his own bhakti. It's the love of himself that he imparts into the hearts of others through this parampara and thereby agrees to be controlled by them. And that parampara decides where they're going to give that. That's why it behooves us to figure, find out what, what, are the, what kind of people are they, are they disposed to spend time and give that to and, and cultivate those kinds of uh, qualities that will give us then capacity to be um, recipients of uh, grace in the form of this rahasyam, utum, this kind of secret knowledge. This is a very important point to understand, the distinction between bhakti and other such um, such paths. It's not that there's no effort to be made, but we make an effort to, 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 to uh, draw that kind of descent. It's, an, it's the path itself is the ideal. Krishna is controlled by bhakti. And he's the supreme controller. So, Therefore, this, the, the popular chant in Gaudiya Vaishnavism is Jai Radhe. So Radha, Radha personifies the supreme devotion. And we're saying Jai Radhe means that Krishna is predominated by Radha, by bhakti, conquered by bhakti. He's like a puppet in her hands. So so, so much emphasis, therefore, should be given to bhakti. And it has to come up here in discussion of the avatar, because the avatar comes to the world because there's some bhakti in the world. Otherwise, what is he going to do here? He doesn't go outside of the influence of bhakti. Never. If he, if he did, then it would be problematic. No, he's atmaram. He's self-satisfied. So he has to be under his own influence only, not any other foreign influence. In Maya Shakti, that is the power of, to, to, to delude, has the power to delude. So Krishna hasn't, he, he, he never comes under the deluding influence, his own delude. It's like the sun. The sun creates a cloud, and the cloud deludes, right, us into thinking, oh, the sun's not out today. Well, we know it is, but, you know, it's not out. We don't see the sun. But you go above the cloud, they're just shining like anything. So the cloud... It's created by the sun. It doesn't have the power to delude the sun. The sun is always shining somewhere, wherever it is. (laughs) 
and it's everywhere. <laughs> so it's only we who don't see it, and that's its own. It's arranged that cloud. So this is the so bhakti. He comes to this world because there's bhakti in the world. So there's some sadhakas. So therefore, again, our attention goes to the devotees. Why is the temple here? Because there are some devotees who were here first. <laughs> and they decided to make a temple. Have the deity and so forth and so this. So again, our attention goes to bhakti. Our attention goes to the devotee. And Krishna is bringing this out here. Arjun, hmm? this is, what is your position? I'm speaking about mine. And you're thinking it's very extraordinary. I'm thinking yours is very extraordinary. How many people think of me like you do? Like a friend. Hmm? And that the devotion is rare. You've got it, therefore I'm giving, giving myself to you, giving my, sharing these secrets with you, some confidence. Again, the guru, disciple, comes to the point of some, some confidence. He feels, guru feels confident. He or she can share truths because he sees the, the qualification over time of the disciple. So, in this way, Krishna has introduced the, 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 the kind of the cause of his descent, the cause of the avatar's descent. And then Arjun has, has his questions. So as I said, he's creating faith in Arjun and doubts in Arjun at the same time. As he wants to progress and bring Arjun into uncharted territory. The uncharted territory is that I'm God. So, Krishna, so Arjun asks, hold on here now. He says, you took birth you know, recently, and Vibhaswan, this sun god, you said you gave this knowledge to, was like, that's a long time ago. You said you gave it to him before? How am I to understand that you instructed him previously? So what he's setting up here is the idea that, well, look, you look like a human, and and humans don't teach gods, gods, gods teach the humans. So what you're saying is that if you're the teacher of the gods, who know more than the humans, you must know everything. The gods who preside over like rain and light and and wind and so forth, this is how they're thought of in, uh, in Vedanta. There's, in other words, the thought is that there's consciousness behind all the movements of nature. Hmm? Just like behind, you know, everything that we get in our house, there's there's... There's something at the other end. There's a bill to pay for the electric, the water, the light, the heat, and everything. You, you enjoy, but you have to pay a bill. You have to acknowledge there's somebody on the other end. So universally speaking, macrocosmically speaking, there's there's something behind the, 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 all the facilities that we we can see because not because we have eyes and one side, but because the, with, not with the sun, because the sun also it's possible for the eyes to see. So there's some relationship that we have in terms of our being constitutive senses with the powers in the universe or in the world that are related to those senses. The power of speech, the power of sight, the power of hearing, and so forth. There's a corresponding agency in nature that uh, makes them, facilitates them. And so the, the, the ancient system was to acknowledge that. And so there would be various rituals to acknowledge and so forth. And, and because the, the, there was consciousness behind matter, then the, the, so there, there, there was a personification of the sun, a personification of the wind and so forth, who was petitioned and uh, 
And so these gods, then, you know, the humans don't instruct the gods, but they, they regard the gods and uh, is the idea. But here's Krishna saying he spoke to the gods. He spoke to the sun god. So Arjuna is thinking, well, you know, first of all, that was a long time ago, and here you are now. So, and secondly, that, that's hard to believe. And, and secondly, then, if you speak to the gods, then you must know everything. Because the gods, most people see, that's, they're interested in material life, so that's as high as they see, so to speak. So he's the god beyond the gods, so to speak. So he's saying, he's introducing by his questioning the opportunity for Krishna to speak about his omniscience and his eternality. And again, he's just sitting there as the chauffeur, so this is a big, big jump. So, excuse me, today's what, Wednesday? Today's Tuesday? Okay. <laughs> okay. So we'll hear tomorrow then a little bit about his um, how he answers Arjun's question as to his uh, his descent. Well, we hear one thing. He says, "Bahuni me biti tani janmani tabacharjuna tani aham veda sarvani natum veda parantapa." He said, "Both of us have passed many lives, Arjun, but the difference is." I know all of them, and you don't know about yours. So, his omniscience. And then in the next verse, he speaks about his eternality. So we will discuss these things at some length tomorrow. Any question? Yeah. The other day you were talking about the spiritual forms, how they are like liquid. And I found that really intriguing. If you could say something more about that. Well, what I mean is, for lack of a better word, they're like flexible, like, you know, we are kind of, matter is more of a, like, like Vaishnamana was saying, concrete. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's concrete. <laughs> we want a concrete example. But the subjective side of life, the objective side of life is concrete. Okay? empirically verifiable and it's there and it's something like that. If I see it then I'll you know I'll I'll believe it. But but um you know I don't see the soul therefore I don't believe it. Well who's talking, you know? There's just some 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 subjective element to life. It's you. <laughs> You're talking, you say, if I see myself, I believe myself. We're listening to you. <laughs> Your thoughts are there. Maybe you're there, too. Um, you know, but, but you're the subjective side of life, not the objective side. But think about it. That there's, there's not much meaning to an objective side if there's no subject to perceive it. Right? So, so we are of the subjective side. In, in that sense, we're we're the thinker, we're the experiencer, and experience is very fluid in relation to the concrete object because the concrete object may be static and you know in form static and and and, and but it may be perceived variously, right, in so many different ways. So so comparatively, the subjective side is fluid. To use a concrete, you know, as an example of 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 the objective, then we let us use then water as the example of the subjective, 
in in you know in comparison. It's a, they're they're opposites. Hmm? Of course, it takes some water to make concrete solid, <laughs> to bring that into form and, and solidify and so forth. So we are of the subjective side, and we are, therefore we are the we are the questioner. The, we have the why, the wondering, and uh, we're the perceiver and so forth. And, and it's a very different. Water is very different than, than concrete. So the idea that the two should be one, and further the two should be concrete, that's like really a, a, a stretch, which is what modern science, for example, has bent on demonstrating that we are really concrete. We're, we're really the objective side. That the objective side has a subjective aspect to it, kind of, and, but if you really look at it, it's, there, there is no real identity there. There's, it's just matter. So this is, um, as I say, we more, in our monism, the extent that Gaudi is, is, is monistic, we are more readily uh, disposed to describe everything as consciousness rather than matter. And that makes more sense because matter is dependent on consciousness to move. Well, of course, they would say, they would, they would they theorize otherwise. So that, you know, this is the debate, whether, there's, whether there is something supernatural or not, whether there's only natural processes it means matter somehow interacting by chance and that's uh, called naturalism, physicalism, materialism. The words keep changing over decades. It used to be called materialism, then it started to be called, I think, naturalism, then physicalism. And there are reasons for that. And the reasons is because it became less easy to to, to classify, and it, it, there were other mm, there forces, other physical forces. We have to talk about that. The forces, and, and so it, it's a, kind of a, these terms are expansions on the original ideas that everything is matter. As matter becomes bigger than it appeared it was, and different than it appeared that it was, from, for example, you know, the classical physical Newtonian mechanistic worldview to, a, you know, to the Viewing the world from the subatomic level to a, you know, it's it's, a, it's different. So um, they're changing the terms to make it more. Well, they're finding things about matter that they didn't know. That's fair, but um, they keep wanting to put consciousness, the subjective, within that. So they're really saying there's there's only the objective. And then saying everything is matter. Anyway, so we see there's quite a bit of difference between the subjective and the objective. And if there's if the more logical thing, if you're going to merge them into a kind of a non-dualism, is to merge matter into 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 consciousness. Then to bring the more complex consciousness into matter. It's more logical that out of a complex thing, less complex things will arise. Rather than out of a less complex thing, more complex things will arise. Out of less inform what is it? Information, more information comes. Out of more information, lesser forms of information may expand. Or out of more information, more information may come. <laughs> so, that help? 
So also then, you know, on a lower level, we have to become flexible to become spiritual. We can't be so black and white, atrophied, concrete. We have to become a little flexible. And Mahabharata spoke about that. He said, you should be humble. So you have to be flexible. You have to bend like this. <laughs> a little humble. It's a, it's a humble approach to life rather than a conquering, controlling matter and, and so forth and air, kind of an arrogance. And I mean, that's what comes from... I suppose you can... It's, anyway, it's a very different approach. And it's it, uh, the, the humble approach, the participatory approach means some flexibility, means moving in the direction of your liquidity and the subjective reality. Another question? All right, we'll stop there. Simad Bhagavad Gita ki jai.